0: 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to deal with the last half of the chapter, but for the sake of uh, continuity, I'll read the whole chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of his command and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. "...as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures." You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fail from your own fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Good stuff, eh? Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to do it slightly differently because in order to maintain the continuity from last week in the kind of end time section of this, I want to kind of fast wind and start in the middle of, chap- of verse 15 and do 15 to the end and then go back and put the end time stuff all together. Verse 15 as also our beloved brother Paul. No division there. You notice how often he uses the word beloved? This is the one who learned of love directly from the Lord Jesus himself. You know, love my sheep. (laughs) Love my lambs. He's doing what he was told. And the thing is that there's often an attempt, and I'll describe it a bit further in a moment, There's often an attempt to divide up the people of God, to separate them, and then to put them one against another. There's a particular desire to discredit the Apostle Paul, because if you successfully discredit the Apostle Paul, you discredit a great chunk of the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a minute, and I have firsthand experience of encountering this our beloved brother Paul, and he speaks then of the wisdom which is given to him. Who would give him that wisdom? Here he comes from above, this wisdom. This is not education. Now, Paul is a highly educated man. Some of you may have heard of the late um, Chuck Missler, and he was a good Bible teacher. He went to be with the Lord... um, eight weeks ago or so. And he, once I remember picking up from him that that Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs. He was a double doctor. But we're not talking about what he learned in the seminaries. We're talking about the wisdom that was given to him, not that which he earned or that which he learned. Do you remember Paul after his um, conversion was in the desert, in the wilderness, in Arabia. And God revealed things and spoke to him. And one of the reasons that there is an attempt to divide the people of God and to divide the word of God and to malign Paul and his teaching and to discredit him is because He has been given revelation, some of which, as Peter says, it's difficult to understand. And when you do understand it, in this modern world, particularly in these last days, and this is the context of 2 Peter 3, these last days, what Paul has to say is very difficult, particularly in terms of gender and of sexual matters, in dealing with the whole gay issue. People would like to put Paul in a cupboard because Jesus doesn't really raise the gender and the homosexual issue, does he? It's raised in the Old Testament, of course. And if you divide Paul away from Jesus and you make Paul to be less than the man of God that he was and less than the servant of God that heard the word of God and brought wisdom and revelation, then you can discredit what he has to say in the 21st century and say, well, Jesus didn't say that. It's the Pauline tradition. And Paul and Jesus are really speaking two different messages, so we'll forget Paul. Paul and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, are absolutely united concerning the truth. We've moved out of the era of time of the first century of the early church where men of God were speaking and writing in a remarkable way that was divinely inspired, uniquely so. I guess that dear Peter, fisherman from Galilee, would never have imagined that he would be writing the word of God and it was equal to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the Torah. I mean, what a shock for a Jewish boy. I need to check the brakes are on before I move (laughs) He is writing something here that is an equality with the rest of the word of God. He goes on in a moment or two, we'll see, to say that about the Apostle Paul. And he says here, onwards in 15, according to the wisdom given to him, and he has written to you. So he was, Paul was given unique wisdom from God, and he says, I need to read into the next bit. He has written to you as also in all his epistles. So he says, look, there's a unique godly wisdom in all that Paul writes, but as he has written to you. Now, this is a, it's not a hot chestnut really. It's a, no, one's, no one can say who wrote for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. No one can say for certain. For various reasons, I am of the strong opinion that it was the Apostle Paul, and because he is the Apostle to the Gentiles, he writes anonymously. And I think this may well be one of the evidences that he wrote to you, because to whom is Peter writing in, chapter, in letters 1 and 2 to the diaspora, those of the dispersion? the Jewish believers who have been scattered abroad in the Near East, particularly in Turkey we're talking about here. And he writes to them and he says, the Apostle Paul has also written to you about this kind of stuff. Now where's that letter of Paul to the diaspora? The most likely explanation, in my opinion, and it is my opinion, and others would disagree, is it is the book of Hebrews. Also, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. You bet. <laughs> you ever tried in Romans or I tried it the other day. I've been personally going it through Ephesians. And by the time I got to the end of the sentence, I'd forgotten how it started. <laughs> I mean, he did have an amazing mind, and he was receiving superlative revelation from God. And grammar is not the way that you approach God's word. You approach it bite by bite as the spirit of God leads you and as the spirit of God feeds you. And yes, there are some things the apostle writes that are really pretty complex but it's not about your intelligence for you to understand. He goes on to say some things that are under which are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. But you know, you know what you're required to apply to the Bible is not two PhDs. Whether or not that is true, it doesn't matter. It's not intelligence. It is diligence. It is being a daily Berean that checks the Bible. Reads the scriptures, listens to what others say, checks them against the scriptures. You and I are in a unique position at the end of the 21st century with all the resources that we have to have a remarkable quiet time with the Lord. In fact, it's good for some quiet times to be noisy times in terms of praising and thanking God because there is so much in the Scriptures. And when Paul, when Peter writes about Paul and he says there are those, and we'll deal with this in a minute, who are untaught and unstable and they twist what Paul says to their own destruction. Yes, they do. He says, as they do, the other scriptures so he is attesting to the fact that what Paul writes is scripture God's word and it is God's word let me tell you there is an anti-Paul movement it moves particularly in the liberal circles you'll not have encountered it much because you wouldn't have speakers like that but maybe in your private church activities you may come across people who would say that, as I've already described, Jesus says this, but Paul says something else, and um, Paul really didn't know what he was talking about. Or Paul was a rabbi, and what we're getting is rabbinical interpretation from him. And to a certain extent, there is that in his teaching, but from a very good and positive point of view. Jillie and Mother and I had the... Um, I was going to say privilege, I'll say doubtful privilege, of going to hear a man called Prince Hassan... Prince... What's his name? Prince El-Hassan bin Talal. El-Hassan bin Talal. He's part of the Jordanian royal family. In fact, he was the previous king's brother. And he was to be the king of Jordan. But just shortly before the previous king died, King Hussein, I think his name was, he wrote around the royal family and he wrote to El-Hassan bin Talal and said, no, you'll not follow me. We'll have um, my son, the current um, king of Jordan. And El-Hassan bin Talal has gone on with lots and lots of other things and he would be described probably as one of the leading lights of, on the Muslim side, in terms of interfaith unity. He's very much into interfaith unity. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. On the understanding that if you got these three united, everything else would collapse and follow. And he was talking at York University, and his subject was um, post-conflict reconstruction. In other words, after you have had a war, how you get the people all to get on together? again? Okay? and he brought a lot of religious things into it. It's a really funny. Let me tell you the funny story. Maybe I've told you before. Just you no know, shout if I have. But he was he was just starting to speak, and he'd been introduced by the Archbishop of York, who cracked a few unfunny jokes and then went and sat down. And there, El Hassan bin Talal gets up to speak. And as he's adjusting and so on, and he's saying, I am so on, and I met Queen so and so of the Netherlands and blah, a lot of name dropping. And he said, People say this is about me. He said, There are even people on the internet who say I am the Antichrist. And with that, all the lights in the room went out. We were plunged into total darkness, apart from a little light on the podium, and all the men with the guns, you know, were there surrounding protect. And two or three minutes, a lot of fiddling around in a cupboard and with a torch and so on, put the lights on, and there he is. And he said, ah, I must be doing something right, I think. And he told a story of how something similar had happened when he was speaking in, in Christchurch, which was either Cambridge or Oxford, I'm not sure. And lo and behold, somebody stands up and says, You should not be standing in this pulpit. This is a Christian church, and you're not a Trinitarian. And he said, with that, a great shaft of sunlight came through the stained glass windows and rested on me on the pulpit. And of course, everybody clapped and so on, right? So that's the background, and he gets on with his post. Conflict Reconstruction and talking about how we needed to reconstruct something of Islam and Christianity together. Because he says, you must remember that Islam is in the Pauline tradition. What did he mean? Well, let me say first and foremost, it is not in the Pauline tradition. But what he is saying is that Paul came along and felt that he could twist and turn the words of Jesus and the concepts that Christ was talking about, he could change things, and then Muhammad came along and he added to that procedure. And that's over now. It is, of course, a lie that was thought up and conceived and spouted out of the depth of hell through one of hell's agents, El-Hassan bin Talal. No doubt about that whatsoever. But it shows the the, the understanding you've got to malign and undercut Paul, and you've got to create division, especially between the Lord Jesus Christ and the leading apostle to the us, the Gentiles. And it's wonderful to see here Peter, very much an apostle to Jewish people, speaking of Paul as our beloved brother Paul, speaking of his writings as being the scriptures. Beloved throughout the whole of the passage. Here we see in chapter seven, in verse seventeen, you therefore beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Now take care. You know all of this stuff. So take care in case you fall from your steadfastness. Are we steadfast? Dead fast. Are we standing rooted firmly in the truth? You know what happens um, property and pavements and uh, uh, car parks and all sorts? A little crack starts. And the rain gets in in the winter and it freezes and it splits it open. And then in the summer, little weeds get in there and their tough little roots wriggle. And you know what? They make the whole beggar and beggar. And slowly but surely, that which is strong and stable begins to crumble. So with the enemy, he wants to whisper into our ear to get away from the word of God, little doctrinal errors and to compromise. And the reason a lot of the time that we compromise is to please people not to offend or to get a pat on the back. So much of the early liberalism that came into the church was by men, particularly men back there a hundred and so many years ago, men seeking to be intellectually acceptable to their equals in universities and colleges. They didn't like men then turning around and saying, you know what Darwin says, and you say the Bible says. Oh, beloved, the Bible was long before Darwin, and the Bible, which is an eternal book, will be long after he is forgotten. So you stand with the scriptures. Don't let any, and I'm not just talking about creationism, on all issues, Don't let any little cracks start. Stand strong. You'll get bashed on the head for it, but don't worry, you've got the helmet of salvation. Now, let's go back to verse 10. End times is a wonderful study because we're living in the era in which these things are truly beginning to happen. And the scripture says when you see these things happen look up for your redemption or your salvation draws near and saying that to saved people is not talking about your salvation from sin he's talking about the redemption or salvation of your body your spirit is already safe and secure your soul your personality if you're walking with jesus In the word and in fellowship with your brethren and in prayer, you know what? Your personality is slowly but surely, certainly, being made more and more like the Lord Jesus. It's his work, not your work. The Spirit of God will do it in you. But unfortunately, the body. Nobody can do anything about the body. Apart from short-term medical intervention, which... As you can see from my position, I need, I will tell you, I had a dark night of the soul last night. I woke at 3 o'clock. I have not been to sleep since. At 3.15 I looked at the clock, but I was awake before. And it was pain that was keeping me awake. And this morning my wife redressed the wounds that are on my legs. I have something called pyoderma, pyoderma gangrenosis. And the pain was excessive. And I was shouting out to the Lord Jesus, Where are you, Lord Jesus? Where are you? Help me, help me, help me. The pain was so excessive. But he did. Here I am, sitting here, rejoicing in him, pain free. Praise God. But it was, a dark, it was a dark encounter, I can tell you. And you stand before the world as it is today and the suffering that there is today and you see suffering on every side in your living experience in Bradford or whatever city or town you come from, your own personal living experience, be it in your own life or your family or your wider extended family or the people that you know, you see suffering, do you not? And if you're bold enough to switch the news on, you see suffering, suffering, suffering. And in the midst of that dark suffering, there is a promise he is coming. And that promise lifts and excites the believer. It's not a dream, a fantasy. It's not a little pill that we give you so that you've got some kind of temporary joy. It's looking at a Bible-revealed reality. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he has laid down certain conditions. And we looked last week and saw that, you know what? The last days there'll be scoffers, and there's a lot of them around. We looked and saw in the scripture that Peter lays out that, you know what? They deny the creation. But listen, you guys, you pay attention. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And we looked at the chronology. There are six days of creation, and the seventh day of the Sabbath, where God rested. So, for the human race, a day is as a thousand years. There are six thousand years of man's activity and God's redemptive work to come to a place where the Sabbath rest of the people of God, as Hebrews calls it, where the kingdom in which the Lord Jesus reigns for a thousand years, the millennium, before the eternal reign begins, that, that period of time, represents day seven. And it's on the horizon. We looked at that. And if we conclude into verse 9... The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing or not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord hasn't lost the plot. He hasn't gone on a rest without us. He has not forgotten. Peter is bold. He says he's not slack, he's not careless about the timing of his plan but he's stretching it to the very last moment why in order that the opportunity for repentance to turn around and salvation is available to mankind if we just go further into the end of the mid, the start of verse 15 and consider that the long suffering of our lord is salvation He is suffering long with this world. He's putting up with this world and its grievous behavior towards him. I think I noted it says in, last week it says in Genesis 6, it grieved God in his heart that he'd made man. And so the Lord Jesus is long suffering and this age is stretched to the very maximum that the total maximum number of people might be reached before a door closes, before a door closes. Having given that positive look, he's given the opportunity that all should come to repentance. He then says, but you've got this on one side, but on the other side, You have to pay attention to something that counterbalances. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In general terms, what he's saying is, look, surprise. Surprise. Something is going to take the human race by surprise. They are incredibly complacent, as we've seen earlier in the chapter. Oh, things have been going on like that forever. People have been saying forever that I've known there's a second coming. Jesus will come back. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, it's been the same thing. He says, wait a minute. There is going to be a surprise. The unexpected a judgment, and that's the general tone of what he's saying. This refers to a judgment and a conclusion which is post-millennial. That is, it is after the thousand years. It is referred to in Revelation chapter twenty and verse eleven, Revelation twenty eleven, because you will see. That this is a hyper-destructive judgment. Everything is melting. There's nothing left. You see that? Everything is dissolved and melting. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, he says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which, which is the book of life. Sorry, wrong reference. Sorry? It's verse 12. Is that not what I was reading? Uh, It's verse... Yes, it's verse 11. Thank you. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. They're gone. They're shattered. They're in pieces, in bits. Gone. Then... There's the great white throne judgment. Thank you, Adrian. That's what that's referring to. It's actually, you can pick it up in the Old Testament in Isaiah 51. I'll read that to you, Isaiah 51.6. Let's hope I've got this one right. Huh? <laughs> that's what happens when you do it on your knees. I think I'll go back to verse, yes, no, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, and the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. It's talking about that particular period. This verse in 2 Peter, that's what he's talking about. This dissolving, absolute, and final, this ultimate destruction, which is then replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. I should really get my my finger in Revelation, because in Revelation 21.1 it then says, Now I saw new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea, no more oceans. That is, the world was not broken up by the tectonic... The new earth is not broken up by the shifting of tectonic plates, and all the nations are separated from one another. Nor does a complete united global community. At last, we'll have a united nations that we can agree with. Hallelujah. Christ on the throne. Yeah. But we need just to look at this thing of the thief in the night... Many years ago, I, many years ago, I was trying to work out how many, I think it was in the 1990s, began in the late 80s, I know that. I was trying to evangelize this man called Peter Henk, H-E-N-K. Way further back in ancestry, his ancestors were hangmen, (laughs) Peter Henk. And so I took him out for lunch and I gave him the gospel again. And I said to him, Peter, would you like to ask Jesus Christ to be your saviour? He said no thank you <laughs> just like no no thank you so where do you go from there well i just stayed his friend his marriage got into difficulty and Julie and i apparently we've no recollection of it but they have they say they came to see us and what we had to say was helpful well praise the lord it's his his work and years later i was going to go out on a special train with peter we were in the trains. That's what linked the two of us together. I had a friend called Noel. still do have a friend called Noel. And Noel and I were very close. And we kind of felt that we egged one another on on end times. The danger became what's called OTT on end times. Yeah. If you're just even interested in end times nowadays, there are people who say, oh, it's OTT on end times, right? I'm OTT on Jesus Christ but I'm balanced on end times, and I was then. But, but this kind of stumbled me a bit. And I was in a restaurant, quite, which we had then quite late at night, waiting for a couple who'd got engaged and were taking about an hour over their last coffee. And I was reading the scriptures, and I was in the book of Daniel, and I was suddenly gripped with a sense of fear and, and insecurity. And I cried out to the Lord, Lord. Are we, meaning Noel and me, and our family, are we going over the top on end times, Lord? And very clearly in my head, not audibly, but very clearly in my head, I heard a voice which I now know to be the voice of God. Go to your through the Bible in one year for today and tomorrow. Well, there and then, I knew it was God. I had no doubt about that. And thank you, the couple came out and were ready to go home. So I finished the cashing up. I locked up, got on the car, drove home. I said, Julie, where is the through the Bible in one year? Because we we weren't actually using it. She found it. And guess what? For today and tomorrow, the passage that I'd been looking at in Daniel was the passage split between the two days. Thank you, Lord. I had such a relief. Couldn't wait for morning. Got on, went down to my friend Noel and said, Noel, you'll never believe what happened to me. And God has spoken to me, and we're not a couple of nutters, right? And he and his wife, now he's a really negative kind of guy. You've got to prove everything ten times over to dear Noel. Oh, he said, I wish something like that could happen to us. And that was the end of it for a while few weeks and just before Christmas Noah and his wife were sitting at home doing their morning Bible study before he went off to do some work and she was going shopping and as they were studying the scriptures he was gripped by a sense that his house was under a threat so neither of them were going to leave it alone and he went out in the morning, and his wife went out in the afternoon. And sure enough, along came some burglars that, mor- that afternoon, trying to get into his house. And he got rid of them, called the police, and they went to, an- they went to another village and did three houses down in the other village. I thought, it was royal, remarkable, remarkable. And we just treated it, you know, at face value. God has saved him a lot of trouble Breaking into He had a large house in grounds, you know, breaking into his lovely house. Fast forward a few more days after Christmas. It's the special train with me and Mr. Hank, the hangman, remember? So I'm telling this story to Mr. Hank, to Peter, thinking that, you know, it, I was trying to get some inroads for the gospel. I was telling the story, not my bit about the Lord speaking to me, but about Noel and the burglars. And I went, click. If the good man of the house had known at which time the thieves would have come. So I stopped him and I went and I phoned from those, those days, it was public phones, phoned Noel from the telephone box. And of course he said, yes, God has spoken to us. And it happened the following Sunday that I was preaching in a local fellowship and I brought, I changed things around and I brought Noel around and we shared together. And this man, Peter Henk, and his wife both came to the service. And Peter gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and walks with him today. And he's OTT on the end times, of course. You see, the thief in the night, it starts way back, and that's our title tonight, it starts way back in Matthew 24. And the danger is that we just think that when the phrase thief in the night is used, it's being used about the same event every time. Whereas it's a, it's a principle that God uses, an illustrative sentence, if you like, to say, look, I am going to surprise the human race. He actually came as a thief in the night at Bethlehem. You realize that? Came quietly. If I might say reverently, he sneaked in the Lord Jesus to the human race. And kept himself under cover right up until the time of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter twenty four and verse thirty-six. But of that hour, that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, another left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me now go to 1 Thessalonians. Read a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It immediately follows the passage on the rapture of the church. Chapter 5 verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Very specifically there, to a, a time when God's people are still on the earth, to a time when he's warning, he's warning, sudden destruction. The unexpected will come when the world is thinking that they've got things together. At least they are speaking. They are speaking peace and safety, peace and security. doesn't say they have it. Such a day as we live in. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3. Remember, now he's speaking here to the church at Sardis. This is a doozy church, a church that thinks it's alive, church that thinks it's got everything, but it's spiritually dead, and he says... Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And finally, reading from Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. You see, there are various contexts in which this phrase, the thief in the night, is used. In 1 Thessalonians, it's immediately connected to the removal of the church from the face of the earth. And suddenly... All that has been routine and normal, confusing, mixed up, yes, United Nations, Brexit, all the things that are going on, the world in a state of turmoil, yet everybody can cope with it, aren't they? You know, Every, There's one side of the world in turmoil, and the other side of the world is just fascinated with the speed at which technology is developing, and they're soaked up with the technology. Suddenly. sudden destruction will come upon them all as a thief comes. You and I are greatly privileged. That's what the scripture is telling us. We are greatly privileged. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in? Holy conduct and godliness. Holy lifestyle. Holiness separated Livestock. Not separated from the world, separated to the Lord. You're the Lord's, but yet you are in the world, and this church knows of it as much as any church, probably in the United Kingdom, because you have an interface with the world through the ministry that you were talking about, Real Hope, and other ministries, of course. We have a godliness That is to be in the world, but not like the world. Don't speak like the world. Don't laugh like the world. Don't be like them. Be like the Lord Jesus. Closer you are to the Lord Jesus, the more distinctive you are in the world. And then remember last week we spoke about in Jude, in the book of Jude, in Jude verse 15, about all the ungodly. To execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them. Of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way. And all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think he's making a point. They are just the people who are without God. And here you're to be shown to be godly. You're with God. And you're like God in in a moral sense. A A humility like the Lord Jesus. A purity like the Lord Jesus. And it results in a wisdom and gifts of the Holy Spirit that make you like the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pull to a conclusion. Because it says that we therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now I can tell you from Acts chapter 17 that it says that God has set a day and we're moving towards a, a fixed point. But here it says, you know what, we're hastening it. Well, first of all, are you looking? Are you looking for the coming of Jesus? Does it feature in your thinking? Does it feature in your prayers? Does it feature in your conversation? I wrestled with this, with one scripture saying, you know what, it's a setting, this thing, hastening. And I think it's this. Correct me afterwards if you think I'm wrong. We cannot change times and seasons. God alone has control of that. But our perception, if you're caught up, as I have been for so many years, with the coming of the Lord Jesus, suddenly you feel you're right on the very doorstep of it. Doesn't half make time fly, beloved. Doesn't half make time fly. It is a most wonderful and exciting pursuit. Looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus will give you a sense of it being hastened. And then he goes on to again repeat the strong emphasis on this extreme final and unique judgment but then he says nevertheless we according to his promise has anyone ever heard of a promise that God broke never will there ever be a promise that God will break never again no so his promise says very clearly there's a new heaven's and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if you know the Lord Jesus, you're going there. You are going there. Unfortunately, I'll be there too, but they'll not let me preach. Don't worry. But you're going there to be with Jesus. The end of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Therefore we shall be forever with the Lord. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, Be diligent to be found with him in peace. Be diligent to be found with him spotless and blameless. Just like the church of which your part is described as meeting Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. We're a blessed, 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 multiply blessed people because we have the word of promises that tells us the future. When will it be? I don't know, but it's soon. Amen.